Last week, we started our Advent series, if you want to call it that, leading up to Christmas, focusing on Old Testament passages, Old Testament promises and prophecies leading up to Christ. Um, If you remember from last week, we talked about the idea of Advent and whether you celebrate it or not. The idea is that we're looking forward, right? Like the Old Testament fathers and the Old Testament prophets, they were looking forward to Christ as he was promised to them. And we now look, look back on the way that God has fulfilled the promises, but we're also looking forward to the promises which have been given to us, to the promise that Christ will come again. And so as we're going through the passage today, just keep that idea in the back of your mind, that the Advent idea of waiting and looking forward to the promise. All right, so we're in Genesis again this week. We were Genesis 15 last week. Now we're Genesis 49. We're coming to the end of Genesis. And just to help us understand, to situate where we are in the narrative, let's try to quickly trace over what's gotten us to here. We're going to try to go through from the beginning of Genesis, follow the, the path of the promise, as it were, from the beginning up to Genesis 49. So I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can. I'm going to call out some references. You don't need to try to follow me. We're going to be going quickly. So starting at the very beginning, Genesis 1, God, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything, right? He creates the earth. He creates mankind, male and female, in his image, and everything is good, right? That's the the refrain that keeps repeating, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, right? So God creates everything, and he charges mankind with dominion over it. Right? Genesis 1.28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing. Right? In Genesis 2, we see God has placed man in a, a garden, a garden sanctuary. Right? Adam is established here as a sort of priest and king over the creation. Right? He's representing God. He's representing the authority, the dominion of the Lord to all the earth. Right, but Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they fail, right? They're meant to be representing God's dominion over the earth. Instead, they disobey, they sin, they obey the serpent instead of God. And as a result, by their sin, as a result of their sin, death comes into the world. The curse is on all creation, right? Everything's under the curse. But in the midst of of the curse, as the Lord is pronouncing the curse on creation, on Adam and Eve, we see the first promise of the hope that's coming. Genesis 3, 15, God is cursing the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Right? So even in the midst of the curse, there's a promise that someone is going to come born 
the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent, defeat the serpent, defeat him and all his seed, his descendants, those who are following him, and is going to set things right, set things back the way it's supposed to be, right? And you could take this almost as the theme verse for all of Scripture, right? All of Scripture is the unfolding of this promise through the course of history, how the Lord fulfills this promise, right? And as we go through the book of Genesis, you can see the same thing. And the question that keeps coming up, or is at least right there under the surface, as we get introduced to each new character along the way, the question is, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to set things right? Is this the seed of the woman? And the answer over and again is no, this isn't the one. But along the way, at each step, we see the promise keeps getting repeated, reiterated. It gets fleshed out and given more detail and more, more to it, right? So you get Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, they have a son. His name is Cain, right? And if you're, you're reading Genesis and you haven't read it before, your first question is, okay, the woman has a child. Is this the one? But of course, we've read it. We know Cain is not the seed who is promised. We see right away, he murders his brother. He comes under the curse. Cain is not the one. Adam and Eve had another child, Seth. Is this the one? But no, right? If you keep going on, Genesis 5, you have this whole list, this whole genealogy now of father to son, to son, to his son, to his son, to his son. And what's the repeated refrain here? And he died. And he died, and he died. The curse is continuing. None of these is the one. And in fact, the earth grows more and more wicked. Genesis 6, right? The whole, the whole earth is wicked. The whole earth is turned against the Lord. And as a result, he has to judge the earth. All, all living things on the earth are wiped out, except for one man, Noah and his family, who are saved through the flood and out of the flood. And then Noah then becomes like another Adam, a new head, a new head over the human race. You see similar command and promise to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. He's being set up as another Adam figure. Is this the one? Well, no. Noah then, he, he gets drunk, he sins, and then his sons are sinning against him. And there's more curses going on, and it continues. And we could go over more things in the meantime. But... Genesis 12, ultimately, God calls out Abram from among idol worshipers to be the father of his people. And again, we see that Abram himself isn't the one. He's going to have lots of his own sin going on. But we see that the promise is now given to Abram, and it's going to come through him and his descendants, right? Genesis 12, it says, you will be... Um, Genesis 12, 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Your name will be great. You will be a blessing. And verse 3 says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? So it's going to be through you, Abram, through your descendants, that the blessing, the ultimate redemption is going to come. And the, the promise to Abraham gets repeated to him over and over and given more 
more meat on its bones, as it were. It describes more things. Genesis 13, he's promised many descendants, a land to dwell in. Genesis 15, we talked about last week. God's again, he's reiterating reiterating the promise. You are going to have a son from your own body. He's going, you're going to have this whole land given to you, right? And through you, the All the nations are going to be blessed. And God seals it with the covenant ceremony that we talked about. And then again, Genesis 17, I'll make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. And he continues to reiterate the promises. Genesis 21, Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, they have the son who's been promised. And I'm skipping over a lot because we have to. But he has the son, Isaac, the son of promise. Then the next chapter, Genesis 22, God asks Abram, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. As Abraham goes to obey, God saves Isaac. He gives a ram instead and Isaac is the child of promise, right? He then, after the death of Abraham, God reiterates the promise to Isaac. In chapter 26, the promise, the same things that are promised to Abraham are repeated to Isaac. He then has his two sons, Esau and Jacob, and there's a lot of story there, but Jacob tricks Esau, the older son. Jacob, the younger, tricks him, and he gains the birthright, And then as Isaac is going to die, he's going to bless his sons, and he's planning to give the great blessing to Esau. But again, Jacob tricks Isaac, and he gets the blessing. And he has to run away to get away from Esau's wrath, and he has to, he's also going out to find a wife. But on the way, God gives him a dream or a vision. And in that vision, He is given the promises, right? So it's gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. God is saying, the promise is still good. The promise is coming through you, right? And now we get to Genesis 49. So we're skipping over a whole bunch more again. We're getting to Genesis 49. This is now the end of Jacob's life, right? They've they've gone into Egypt through the whole story of Joseph, who gets sold into slavery by his brothers. They've now gone into Egypt because through Joseph's agency, Egypt has become the place where food is in the midst of the famine. And so through the son Joseph, the other brothers are saved and the whole family is brought into Egypt, which then is going to ultimately fulfill the the prophecy that the Lord gave Abraham, that your descendants are going to be strangers in another land for four generations. So they're now in Egypt. Jacob's about to die. He knows he's on his deathbed and he gathers his sons together and he's going to now give his deathbed speech and blessing and say his last words to his sons. And so Genesis 49, 1 and 2, Jacob summons his sons and says, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Or it says in the latter days. So he's talking about a time in the future and not, not the immediate, immediate future. This is looking more, more distantly. This is the latter days. This is a, a phrase which is more associated with prophets speaking into the distant future. 
So he's not really particularly speaking to his sons as individual persons, but to them and their descendants, right? Last week we talked about how you were identified with your family, with your, your seed who comes after you. Abram, when God's giving promises to Abram, it's not just to him, it's to him and his family. Now, Jacob is doing the same for his sons. This is what's going to happen to you, to your offspring in the future. Notice also verse 2, he says to him, says, listen to Israel, your father. He's using the name Israel, which the Lord had given him, pointing to him being the father of the nation. So he's saying, He's speaking now in his identity as Israel, the nation, right? The father of the nation. And now he's speaking of the future of his sons, of the tribes which will make up that nation. And the first three sons, which we're skipping over because we're talking about Judah, they all get negative things said about them, how they're not going to get something or how it's going to be Not so good for them. And then it comes to Judah, and here the tone changes. All right, so verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. So first, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Praise, the word praise is associated with Judah's name, right? When he's born, his mother Leah says, you know, I'm praising the Lord for making me fruitful. So his name is Judah. And it, it's, it's a wordplay. Praise and Judah are ba- very much the same in the Hebrew language. So he's, his name means praise. He's going to be praised by his brothers. And he's going to have victory over his enemies, right? So it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is a posture of victory, right? The enemy has surrendered. He's basically put himself at your mercy. Your hand is on his neck. You can do to him as you please, right? He's totally defeated. So Judah has the victory and he has the, the, the headship or the leadership over the sons of Jacob, right? Verse 8, your father's sons shall bow down to you. All right, now if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you might, that might remind you of something, right? You have Joseph, the son of Jacob's favored wife, and Joseph becomes the favored son, and he's the one who has the dreams, and he, which are indicating that his brothers will bow down to him, Right? And if you're looking at the book of Genesis, you sort of expect that Joseph is the one who's going to rise to prominence. It seems to be that everything's coming to Joseph. Everything's pointing his way. He's the one who, you know, we can look at as the faithful son, the one who does well, who doesn't um, fall into sin and temptation in contrast to his brothers. He's the one who essentially saves his whole family through going to Egypt but here, here we have a shift, right? Now what had been said about Joseph is being said about Judah, right? So there's a sort of shift in focus in the future from Joseph to Judah. The place of authority over the sons of Jacob is coming to Judah. Ultimately, the promised kingdom then is going to come through Judah. Judah. 
And Judah here is going to be mighty. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion. He's from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? Right? The lion is the king of the beasts, we say, right? And that's not just unique to our culture. This is throughout many cultures across history. The lion is seen as sort of the, the, the top of the food chain, as it were. He's the, the powerful, mighty beast. They've all, lions are always a symbol of strength and power. Here, Judah is depicted as a powerful lion, right? He's hunting his prey successfully. And he's not just hunting his prey successfully, but now he's going he's gonna to sit down, he's going to lie down, he's going to enjoy it, right? He's enjoying the spoils of his hunt, the spoils of his victory, and he's enjoying it in peace, right? No one's going to take that from him, right? He's sitting in his majesty, in his power, and everybody around him knows it. And it says, who dares rouse him, right? You see the lion laying there with his kill. You're going to go and make that lion get up and go somewhere else? I don't think so. All right, so Judah now is going to be the, the triumphant, dominant ruler. His victory is so complete that he can just sit down and enjoy the spoils. In verse 10, we see he's going to be the king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the scepter and the staff are both instruments of kingship, right? It's both symbols of kingship. The king has the scepter. The king has the staff in his hand, right? And he says, the scepter shall not depart. Or the ruler's staff shall not depart. So this is not just a, a kingship which is here for a bit and then gone. It continues. You have a continuing kingship. And it's not just for Judah himself. It's for his offspring. Right? When it says the ruler's staff from between his feet. Between the feet is the location of procreation. That's what this is pointing to. The, the place where the progeny comes the kingdom is not going to depart from Judah or his offspring who come out from him, who come after him. This is continuing through Judah's offspring. And if you look at the, the second half of the verse, we're going to see what is coming to, right? So it says until, this is pointing to something. And if you have different versions, you're going to see that this gets translated a bunch of different ways. This is actually, in Hebrew, one of the most difficult passages to translate in the whole Old Testament. So if you have the ESV, like the Pew Bible, it's going to say, until tribute comes to him. Uh, the New American Standard says, until Shiloh comes. If you have an NIV, it says, until he to whom it belongs shall come. If you have the Christian Standard Bible, it says, until he whose right it is comes. So... A lot of different, slightly different translations, but whichever one you choose, the ultimate answer is still the same, right? It's all pointing to the same thing. There's something coming. This isn't just a kingdom. This is a kingdom with a goal, with a purpose. It's pointing, it's moving toward an end point. There's one coming. There's a king who's coming. 
who is more significant than just the kingdom leading up to him. There's a, a final king coming. There's the, the one who it belongs to. This is his kingdom, his scepter, his staff. He's receiving tribute. He's receiving honor more than those who have come before. And he's receiving the obedience of the peoples, right? And notice it says the obedience of the peoples. It's not just the people, like it's the obedience of, you know, the people here. It's peoples, right? Peoples is talking about various people groups. So it's not just you guys, the sons of Jacob, not just the, um, the family of Israel here. This is the, the peoples, all the peoples, people groups around are going to be ruled by this king. So like the promise to Abraham, we're seeing here that there's, this is extending not just to a small group, but in you, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Here it's the peoples are all under this king, right? It's not just for the people of Israel, the offspring of Jacob, all the peoples of the world. And from there, we see not just the extent of the kingdom, but we see its glory, the abundance which is to be had in this kingdom. Verse 11, he ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. All right, so what's going on here? These are images of a kingdom with great abundance, right? You can tie your donkey to a grapevine. Doesn't that just say abundance to you? Why why does that say abundance? Why is this significant that you're going to tie your donkey to the grapevine? Well, normally you're never going to tie your donkey to the grapevine for a couple reasons. One, if you tie your donkey to the grapevine, what's going to happen to the grapes? Right? The donkey's going to eat the grapes. And your grapes are valuable. You don't want to just let your donkey eat them. You feed your donkey other stuff. All right, so you don't want to f- your donkey to eat the grapes. But here, everything's so plentiful that it doesn't matter if the donkey eats your grapes. There's no lack of grapes. You have as many grapes as you want. All right, the other reason you don't tie your donkey to the grapevine is that you know, it's not really something strong that's going to keep your donkey here. So your donkey is probably going to eat the grapes and then get away. But here the, the grape vines are so strong, you can tie your donkey to it and it's not going to get away. So you're seeing a plentiful harvest. You're seeing flourishing crops that are stronger than any you might imagine. And so here, you know, this, it's flourishing. There's abundance. There's everything you could ask for. And then the second half of the verse, he washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So again, we're seeing abundance. We're seeing flourishing. And, you know, there's, there's two ways you could take this image, and either one is sort of pointing the same way. First is the idea of how the grapes were made, right? So when you, how the wine is made. All right, so when you were making wine, the grapes are gathered up, you put them into a, a vat, this big like basin 
stone thing. You put the, the grapes in there, then you get in and you stomp on the grapes. You squish them with your feet to get the grape, the, the grape juice out, to get the wine out, right? So it's possible that the image here is that you have so many grapes, it's so plentiful that when you're, you're treading out the wine, it's, it's flowing so much, it's running, the wine is running so deep that you're getting soaked with it. Your, your garments, your robes are washed in the blood of the grapes, washed in the wine. So that's pointing to abundance. The, the other possibility, and this again is pointing to the same thing of abundance, is wine, maybe the idea is that wine is so plentiful here, you have so much wine, it's just as common as water. Normally you'd wash your clothes in water, Wine, wine, water, there's so much of it, who cares? You know, there's so much. It's an overflowing abundance. Either way, again, the picture, total, total abundance, total um, plenty. All right, this kingdom is full, full to overflowing. And then verses 12 and 13, or verses 12 is pointing to, depending on your translation, either the, the beauty and the glory of the king or, again, the abundance. So either it's talking about comparing the features of the king to the wine and the milk. Like it, your translation might say, his eyes are dark like wine and his teeth white like milk. And it's pointing, you know, similar to the type of descriptions you see in the Song of Solomon or some of the other poetry, it's pointing to the, the beauty and the majesty of the king, right? His teeth are white. His eyes are dark. It's, he's beautiful. He's majestic. Or it could be, again, um, plenty, right? So much, so much wine that his eyes are dark. He's had so much milk that it's made his teeth white. Either way, we're pointing to the glory of the kingdom, the majesty of the kingdom, all right? What, what kingdom is this? What king is this? It's beyond imagination. And so to, to sum up the whole, the whole picture here of what's, being, what's going on, Jacob is blessing Judah, his son, right? And in the blessing, we see that this line of promise is coming through him, right? It's the, the promised seed of the woman, the promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All this is coming now and focusing in through Jacob into Judah, right? It's Judah, your offspring is going to be the king. Your offspring through you is coming the kingdom, right? The kingdom's coming through Judah, through his descendants. And it's not just any king, not just any kingdom, it's the great king. It's the great kingdom. It's far-reaching, including many peoples. It's glorious and plentiful. There's no lack. There's no want in this kingdom. So, what, is that, what does that mean to us? Okay, so we have Jacob, we have Joseph, we have Judah, we have all these people, book of Genesis. This happens about 4,000 years ago, give or take a little bit, depending on how people count and 
what we compare it to. But how does that impact us today, right? So we know that promises are pointing forward and all that. So, but what about us now, 4,000 years later, right? Are we expecting lots of wine to drink and what, what, what is it to us? So first, as we look back on this, we look back through history, we see the, first the Lord's faithfulness to his promise, right? We're going through this series looking at God's promises. We're looking back through history. We see God's faithfulness, that the promises are given and the promises are kept. God keeps his promises, right? We're looking back from the other side of Christ, Christ has come, and we're looking back on it. They're looking forward to the one who is to come. We're looking back on the one who came, right? And we see in him how the promises are fulfilled, right? Jesus, in him we see the great king, born of the tribe and the lineage of Judah. If you look back in the New Testament, they give genealogies of Jesus. And the reason they do that is to tie him in to all these promises, right? It's not just because they like genealogies, though they do like genealogies. It was important who your family is, who you come from. But they're specifically putting this in here to point us back to the promises, right? He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Judah. Later we'll see he's the son of David. All these people who were given promises... Jesus has come through them. So these promises are fulfilled through their greater son, Jesus. Right? He is born of the tribe, the lineage of Judah. He is the lion of Judah. He is worthy. Right? Gordon read that passage in Revelation for us earlier. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has overcome. He has conquered. His enemies have been defeated, right? The hand on the neck, that's that idea. Total victory. Sin and death are the great enemies. Sin and death, the curse from Genesis 3 all the way up that's been promised, right? Someone's going to come who's going to crush the serpent. That has happened now in Christ, the Lion of Judah. He has defeated the enemy, sin and death, the curse. He's triumphed at the cross, right? And he's defeated his enemies, and the Lion of Judah is now sitting in victory, right? He's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he's enjoying his victory. He sits in victory to enjoy and to share with his people the spoils of victory. All right, so Christians, when you get discouraged by troubles and difficulties in this life, remember the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. When you look around, when you worry about the present time. You worry about the future. When you feel that you're, you're afraid that God might be forgetting you, that you're not important to him, or that he doesn't care, you're not sure that he's going to take care of you. 
You're not sure of his goodness to you. Remember what he has already done, right? Remember what he did for Abraham. Remember what he did for Isaac and Jacob and Judah and the nation of Israel. But more importantly, remember what he has already done for you. Right? In Christ, what he's, he's already won the victory for you. The promise is already yours in Christ. It's been earned. It's been, the, the enemy's defeated. The victory's been won. The spoils are already yours. Right? And we don't just look back also on the faithfulness of God, what he's done in the past. We also look forward to the promise this, this kingdom, right, this super abundant, overflowing, bountiful kingdom is coming, right? That's certain. The, the victory's been won. The spoils are coming. The, the kingdom is coming, right? In just, just a moment, we're going to be celebrating communion together, right? The Lord's Supper. And... If you're not a believer, I want you to take this opportunity as we have the Lord's Supper. I want you to see it as you watch the celebration. See it as a a physical, visible sign of what's offered to you in Christ, right? In Jesus, all of this can be yours, right? This kingdom can be yours. The the victory over sin, the victory over death can be yours if you believe in Christ, put your trust in Christ. And if you're a believer, those of us who do believe, we have this supper, the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us of what we have in Christ. But as as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I want you to keep in mind that this is not just a remembrance looking back. Right? When we have the supper, this is a foretaste of what's still to come, right? It's a foretaste of the great feast of the kingdom, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? This is, this is that, that kingdom with the overflowing wine, right? The cup is overflowing to us. It's a foretaste of the time when all of us will sit down with him and enjoy the fullness of his victory, Enjoy his majesty, his power, and especially the presence with us of our Lord, the Lion of Judah. We will be with him, the king above all kings. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word to us and your promises to us. Lord, we thank you for what you have done, that you've been faithful. You were faithful God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. You're the faithful God of us. Your promises are good and true. And in you, we will receive the kingdom. Lord, help us today as we, as we partake of you in the Lord's Supper, as we, we look back on what you've done for us. Help us to 
to see you in all your glory and all your beauty and all your might. Help us to look forward in faith to what you have promised to us. In Jesus' name, the Lion of Judah and his victory and his his name and his standing, we pray. Amen.